in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, Paul says, when one turns to the Lord, that is, when one turns to Christ, anytime Paul says Lord, it usually means Christ. When one turns to Christ, the veil is removed. This is a great summary of what we've been talking about in Epiphany. It's actually a great summary of Epiphany, is that when we gaze at Jesus, we see what, what God's up to. Uh, we see what, uh, what, how God is saving the world. Um, we see uh, um, what God is doing among us, and we see ourselves more clearly. And so, because Jesus is the epiphany of God. Jesus reveals uh, the saving purposes of God. And so we've, uh, through epiphany, been uh, fixing our gaze on Jesus and asking, what is Jesus revealing? What is Jesus revealing about how God is saving the world? And so here we are at this last Sunday of Epiphany. Uh, the first Sunday of Epiphany uh, was Jesus' baptism. And at, at uh, Jesus' baptism, uh, the, the divine voice, the Father's voice, speaks a word of validation on Jesus and says, This one, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And here at the other bookend of Epiphany, of looking at how Jesus is the revelation of God's saving purposes, uh, Epiphany is always bookended by transfiguration. By transfiguration, maybe that's why it snowed. It's like we're up on the mountain with Jesus, and maybe there was snow up there on Tabor. Actually, I don't know. Some of you brilliant people may know that better than I would. Um, way off topic. Focus, Seth. Uh, the bookend of transfiguration, Jesus's glory. Um, the heavens are once again ripped open. In fact, there's this this thin veil between heaven and earth, and Jesus' glory is revealed. The divine voice speaks and says, this time, this is my chosen one. Listen to him. So here we are at the end of Epiphany. So I ask you a question. At the end of Epiphany, what does it mean to be human? Just let that simmer for a second. What does it mean to be human? put it a slightly different way, when you think of what the ideal human person is like, what images come to your mind? When you think of what the ideal human person is like, what images come to your mind? When you think of what the ideal human experience is, or the ideal human journey what does that involve? Throughout history, um, maybe especially in modern times, but maybe not, maybe it just we're near enough to modern times to be able to say maybe more about it. Um, but throughout history, the world has had this habit of putting an image of I, what an ideal human person is on a pedestal. And, and then that, that's what humanity looks like. And then everyone else is judged on the basis of that picture of what ideal humanity is, like on a scale. So the question then is, how closely do you align to that picture of ideal humanity? And so your humanity in all sense of like beauty and goodness and, and all the aesthetical stuff is judged on the basis of this one picture or, or a series of pictures of what ideal humanity is. And then, and then you get judged, like on a scale, uh, on how close you are to that picture. And if you listen to the way that different, um, throughout history, especially different dominant cultures, um, have talked about 
uh, humanity uh, in relation to that ideal human picture. There's, there's this scale that the farther away that you get from that picture of ideal humanness, um, the less human you are. The more that those cultures tend to describe you in terms um, that are less human. Um, you become more barbaric. Um, less human. Maybe you can start to think of some examples um, of this. Maybe you can start to think of an, an example of what a picture of the ideal human is in our culture, 21st century North America. Maybe it's a picture of, of being a certain height. You're tall or, or a certain weight. You're, you're thin or maybe it's blonde hair or maybe you have a certain skin complex complexion, maybe you have certain intellectual capabilities, a certain physical physique, maybe you're in a certain status of mental health. The list goes on. And so the question then isn't how many people um, actually live up to that image, but the way in which that image of the ideal human acts is like the orienting point for everyone, and everyone scales themselves and judges themselves off the basis of that, of that picture. What you are maybe familiar with intimately in your own life or as you, as you look at the world around us is that every time that that picture of ideal humanness is, con- is constructed, it always leads to oppression. It always leads to dehumanization for everybody. It, it should not go without saying that um, we live uh, haunted by the ever-present history of the sense in which whiteness was that picture of humanness for us, for, for modern Western culture, and the kind of uh, oppression and marginalization um, that that meant for people who didn't align to a certain picture of humanness and how that continues to play out. That's bad news for those people, and it's bad news for everybody. Because the more familiar you are with yourself, the more honest you are with the reality of yourself, the more that you know that you don't fit those pictures of ideal humanness. Or maybe even if you think about the pictures of ideal human experience in our 21st century world in this part of northwest Arkansas, what kind of experiences, what kind of journey are you supposed to have had maybe by this point in your life? Maybe there's a specific vision for how things should go for you, for how your marriage is supposed to go, or for that your marital status is supposed to go, for uh, what your feelings and emotions and desires and attractions are supposed to be like, for how school is supposed to go, for how parenting is supposed to go, for how childbirth is supposed to go. For whatever, what is, what is the ideal human experience that captures people's imaginations? And how do you feel in relation to that ideal human experience? Are there places, even now, where you can think of where, where you feel the shame of falling short of the ideal human image or the, having the ideal human experience? Maybe you feel fear about, about losing your pursuit of the ideal human image or the ideal human experience. I actually just, I mean, to be frank, like I, I, really, I really fear 
uh, losing um, my intellectual, cap- my, my mental wherewithal and my physical wherewithal. If I got really honest, like, I'm pretty afraid of that because the sense in which I, I can tell that I, I would cease to, to really know who I am. If I were no longer like within that scale of ideal humanness. And so what I can recognize is that actually functions um, to uh, multiply fear and, even, and multiply shame and multiply worry and anxiety in my life. It's not good for me and it's not good for the people around me. Where do you feel this? Where do you feel the shame or the fear or the guilt or the anxiety around this? There's a story that I heard uh, not too long ago uh, by a guy who is actually a, a theologian, pastor, um, uh, Asian-American guy named Amos Young. And Amos uh, grew up um, in uh, Southeast Asia and in a, in a Pentecostal family. His dad uh, was a Pentecostal preacher. And uh, Amos has a younger brother named Mark who has Down syndrome. And Amos tells the story of how um, his mother, this wonderful, um, very pious, exuberant Pentecostal woman, um, would pray fervently day after day for God to heal Mark. Like any good, uh, pious, fervent Pentecostal mom would do, would pray on her knees day after day, for 40 years, for God to heal Mark. And of course, a lot of like what we think that healing looks like is that there uh, uh, would no longer be this distance between Mark's experience and the ideal human experience, right? Because in our minds, like Mark would, or in the mind of our, our culture, Mark would not, uh, he would be farther away from that, that on the scale, from the ideal human image or experience. And so uh, she would pray for day after day after day for, for Mark to be healed. And, and a lot of what we think that healing means and what, what they expected it to mean, especially in the early years, was that healing would mean the healing of the chromosome. And then Amos tells, this, says that after about 30 years or so, um, they begin to, to talk differently about about what that healing means. That his mom continues in her old age, continues to pray on her knees for Mark day after day, but after 30, 40 years, um, no longer does she mean the healing of the chromosome. And in fact, what they say is that they started out praying, thinking that God would heal Mark. But they've discovered after 40 years that God was healing them. Christ the King in a world that puts up this image of ideal humanity. Christ comes revealing his glory through disfigured shame. In a world in which we suffer under the oppression of a picture of ideal humanity, Christ reveals his glory through his disfigured shame. And that means that he frees us from bondage to the ideal life. 
He frees us from bondage to the ideal life from, and from all the ways the ideal life keeps us locked in shame and guilt and fear and anxiety. And he frees us so that we can enter the new identity, the new humanity that he is forging for us in the midst of all our frailty. He frees us so that we can enter into the new identity, the new humanity that he is forging for us in the midst of human frailty. Will you enter today? In Luke chapter 9, uh, Luke narrates this, this um, scene of the transfiguration, which appears in, in three of the four Gospels. It's a really important time when um, Peter, James, and John go up on, on the mountain with Jesus, and there's this thinness of heaven and earth, and Jesus' inner glory uh, shines forth before them, and Moses and, and Elijah appear. And we remember, as we're, as we're trying to receive this text, as we're trying to listen and say, what is Jesus revealing here? What is the epiphany of God's saving purpose here? We remember, um, as we've already seen in Luke, that Jesus is saving the world by coming near. By coming near and shattering the illusions and overturning um, the system of the world's blessing that keeps us distanced from God and others. This is what we've been talking about over these last few weeks of Epiphany, is that Jesus is coming to shatter the illusions and overturn the systems of blessing of the world that keep us distanced from God and others. Simply put, we see revealed in Jesus, we've had, we have seen revealed in Jesus that the liberating power of the gospel is not flowing through the normal channels of power. The liberating power of the gospel is not flowing through the normal channels of power, of success, of influence, of wealth, of honor, and of status. Rather, the gospel is flowing through those, in and among and through those, who have nothing to expect from the world's definition of blessing and power and success and all that kind of stuff. Blessed are the poor, Jesus said. The kingdom of God belongs to them. The broken, the downhearted, the lowly, the poor, the kingdom of God belongs to these, and also to, we see today, the disfigured. And so we look at this, this transfiguration, and we see that there's an interesting interplay here between tra- transfiguration and disfiguration. But first, we, we name, we recognize that the transfiguration is an epiphany of what God is doing. All, all, a lot of the work that the gospel writers are doing are saying, look at Jesus, and when you look at Jesus, whatever you see Jesus doing, whatever you see Jesus saying, what you see Jesus embodying, this is the saving purposes of God. It's not hidden somewhere else. It's not disguised in another uh, 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 clothes. This is, this is it. Whatever you see in Christ, this is God's heart. This is God's saving purposes. And so this, this transfiguration is a stamp of validation. On Jesus, on Jesus' ministry, on, and on the particular way that Jesus is saving the world. We remember that uh, in all the Gospels where the Transfiguration appears, it appears um, couched between Jesus' hard sayings about uh, taking up your cross and following him, and about the Son of Man is going to be handed over to suffer and to die. And so the transfiguration is a stamp of approval on everything about Jesus' ministry, not just this moment of glory where, where all the light and all the warm fuzzies are coming and shining through, even though it was a terrifying experience even for those disciples. It's a stamp of approval on that, saying that is what God is up to. And so gazing at Christ 
is like being able to see the world right side up. That's what we've talked about. It's like we've been flying upside down, but gazing at Christ, and what we see revealed in Christ is that we see the world right side up, but we've been upside down for, for so long. By gazing at Christ, the veil, as Paul would say, or maybe you could even say uh, the spell, like there's a veil that's been over us, we've been under a spell, where we cannot see the world rightly, we can't see ourselves rightly, we can't see God rightly. The veil or the spell that keeps us under the power of bondage to the, blessed, the world's definition of the blessed life. The world's definition of the ideal human. And what that experience and what the human journey should actually be like. The world's definition of that. The veil, the spell that we're under, Jesus breaks that. When we gaze at Jesus, the veil is removed, the spell is broken, and we can see what's really going on in the world, what real human flourishing is all about, and really what God is doing and among those um, in whom he is working. By gazing at Christ, we see God, we see ourselves, and we see the world rightly. And so that's why we need to pay attention to what's going on here in this transition between scenes. In our gospel reading, there are two different scenes. There's up on the mountain and there's down from the mountain. And that's on purpose. Because it's easy to just look at the transfiguration and feel like, oh, this is it. This is the moment. This is what God is doing. And so we lift our eyes out of our normal reality, out of the human reality. And we get lifted up into the glory and beauty and fuzziness of it all. But notice where Luke is directing our eyes. Luke is directing our eyes to Jesus. Yes, gaze at Jesus. This is God's heart. But then our, our gaze is directed down the mountain into the chaos below. From transfiguration to disfiguration. In fact, uh, Jesus and Peter, James, and John uh, come down from the mountain. It says the next day they're, melt with, they're met with this chaos. They're, and there's this father who's begging Jesus to look. There's this, Luke is playing with, with eyesight, with seeing. And uh, uh, on the mountain they were seeing, they were looking, they were gazing at Jesus. And then they come down the mountain and this father says, Jesus, look, see my son. Look at him, notice him. And his son is in this condition that most of us would not want to look at. The descriptive words, even though it may be missed a little bit in English here, the descriptive words that Luke is trying to use, uh, seizures, foaming at the mouth, convulsions. Um, the father is saying that this evil spirit that's inhabit inhabited him um, is literally breaking his son apart. Like think of the breaking down of his humanity. So the picture is painted of something that we wouldn't, we wouldn't want to look at, that we would want to turn our face away from. But here our eyes is moved from gazing at the transfigured Jesus to looking at this, this figurement. And, and the disciples who were there, the ten who were, or, who were left there, haven't been able to do anything about it. Even though the earlier um, in, in Luke's gospel that they were, they were sent out, they were given the power to release uh, uh, demons, they haven't been able to handle this one. Maybe because they were like, this is just, we wash our hands of this, we don't want to mess with this case. The point is that this is both a difficult case and also that it's supposed to be repulsive. That's, that's the sense that we're getting from this. And so see what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is, is bringing us in to this, to this disfiguration. He's neither um, averting our eyes from it, 
from the reality of this or, or saying that if you're going to follow me, then you have, to, you have to either avert your eyes from this or you have to man up and shape up. He's coming near to the disfigurement. And Jesus heals this, heals this boy. But here's the big thing. Here's the big thing to see about this is that it wasn't just that Jesus was bringing this boy physical healing. He did do that. He did cast the spirit out. It wasn't just that Jesus was bringing this boy physical healing. Jesus was restoring to this boy his humanity. What Jesus is doing is all a part of what we've seen him been doing. And when he brings salvation, there's this social reversal. When those who were rejected and marginalized and socially ostracized that were kept out of the, of the systems of blessing that the world created, when Jesus comes and pronounces the gospel, it's the liberation and, and flourishing and new life on that situation. And, Jesus, and this boy is caught up with, within that. Because in, in, this, in the first century and also in our day, physical disfigurement meant social marginalization. Physical disfigurement meant social, social marginalization. It also meant religious marginalization. It meant that, that this boy and his family were kept out of, of the usual cycles of, of familial and, and uh, financial and like status and honor and religious, like all this stuff. They were kept out of that. Pushed out of relationships, out of connection, out of God's presence. And so what Jesus is doing is not just making the boy better. He's restoring his humanity. He's coming near and saying, this is what salvation is about. This is where the gospel is flowing, in and through here. And so Jesus heals the boy. And notice there at the end of our reading, uh, there in 43, it says, and, every, and when he healed the boy, everyone marveled at the greatness of God. Sort of like you would maybe marvel at the transfiguration. Oh, marvel at the greatness of God. And this wasn't in our reading, but what's interesting is what Jesus says next. Because what Jesus says next is that he, uh, he redirects their attention as, as if everyone is just really happy that the problem went away. But then Jesus redirects their attention and he says, let these words sink into your ears. Okay, I'm not paraphrasing. That's like literally what Jesus says. He says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man will be handed over to death. It's as if what Jesus is saying is like, like things aren't better just because the problem went away. Jesus is saying that his glory is being revealed and will be revealed through his disfigured shame. He's saying you can't look just to the mountain, just to the, the glory that's coming out here, and just to the fact that someone got better. Because what my ministry, what the gospel is about, my glory, what God is doing in the world, will be revealed through my disfigured shame. Which is a, which is a great way to summarize what the cross was all about. And so the boy was healed, yes. Yes, the boy was healed. It was a moment when, when the fullness of God's new creation the concrete fullness of God's new creation broke forth within the present, and, and there was a manifestation and a realization of that. But what Jesus is saying includes that, but it goes beyond that, because, because that doesn't always happen. And when it doesn't happen, the point is that Christ's glory is still being revealed among us. His salvation is still working out among us, but it's being revealed in and through disfigured shame. 
And this is what the disciples were failing to see. This is why they needed to take that journey with Jesus to the cross. And so this is not to say that disfigurement or pain or suffering or poverty is a good thing in and of itself. That's not what this does. Rather, it means that the currents of God's grace, the flow, the flow of God's grace in life are flowing through weakness and lowliness, not through worldly strength, power, success, and status. And that very reality breaks open a path of liberation for a world in which we, ourselves, even in ways we don't know it, suffer under the bondage of the ideal picture of humanity. We, we can both enter that and then give witness to the world to a different reality, to a different source of life and humanity and new creation. Some of you guys may know uh, part of the story of St. Francis of Assisi. St. Francis... Uh, lived um, about 800 years ago, started a religious order called the Franciscans. I think some of you guys are familiar with this. Uh, part of uh, St. Francis's story and the ministry that, that he embodied, his was a ministry of, of being with the least of these, himself taking on a vow of poverty. Um, part of St. Francis's early story was that he was terrified of lepers. Uh, and in, in the... Um, in, in St. Francis's day, this was like a huge, a huge problem. Leprosy was a huge problem. And if you know anything about uh, leprosy, it's not just a, a painful disease. Um, it's a, it's a, a one that is a communicable disease. Uh, and it's not just painful and communicable. It's a disfiguring disease. It like actually eats away at your flesh. And so if, uh, if a leper was approaching a town, they were socially ostracized. If, a, if a, a leper was approaching a town, they would ring a bell so that everyone could clear out and get out of the way um, so that they wouldn't have to be near a leper um, or even to have to look at the leper. And so there was this day when um, St. Francis heard... He wasn't St. Francis at that point. Francis heard the bell. And he heard the voice of God say, Don't turn away. And instead of turning away, he went and he embraced the person and kissed the person. And in that moment, the way that he reflects on it is he says that he didn't, he didn't meet a beast, but a human. And in fact, encountered the face of God. And it transformed his life and ministry. And he, he had a, a big part of his ministry was, was being with lepers in, in this colony of, of lepers. It was a part of what he and his followers would do. Francis met lepers in their human frailty. He shared in their humanity. Recognizing their humanity. And the way that he talks about it is himself experiencing transformation and healing If Christ reveals his glory through, for, through disfigured shame, then we best understand who God truly is and what God is truly doing and who we truly are by tending to the reality of human frailty. The way that we best understand who God is, what God is doing in us, and what God is doing in the world around us, if this is true, is by tending to the reality of human frailty. 
And you might even say just that what that is is just tending to reality. We all get old and die. Just tending to reality. And so what this means is, is creating a new dynamic where, where those of us who feel like that we're close to the ideal picture, to where we're not just like, okay, we're going to take all the thems, and we're going to include them in our picture of ideal humanity, but rather that we see that, that our humanity, that what God is doing is actually in there, is actually in the human frailty that, that we can recognize in ourselves by being among those who the world considers far from the picture of ideal humanity. And it's from this place of finding ourselves included in human frailty that Christ is forging a new identity for us all. It's in this place where Christ is forging a new identity for us all. It's in that place where, where I, can, I can, I think I've told you guys, you've probably heard the saga, if you, you've talked to me at all, the saga of trying to get our kids to sleep. It's been really disruptive for me and, and hits me on a number of levels. Um, but but uh, a, an epiphany, a eureka moment that I've had recently is that this is, this is actually hits in that fear for me of, of like my bodily and mental frailty because it makes my head feel slow and my body feel old. But if I could just tend to there, tend to that, tend to the sense in which my identity has become dependent on those two things, then I can begin to discover the new identity, the new humanity that God is forging for me and inviting for me to step into in the midst of my human frailty. Receiving and stepping into our new identity in Christ, our true humanity, if we want to do that today, it comes by looking, by paying attention, by gazing where we may be afraid to look. And so my question is today, friends, where are you afraid to look? I've been afraid to look um, at at this uh, fear and anxiety in my life. Where are you afraid to look? To look. In whom are you expecting to meet with God? To find um, the place where God is renewing your life and your humanity? What are you afraid to face today? This new, this new way of seeing has the ability to transform how we live and how we act how we see ourselves and those uh, among whom we spend time. So I just pose that question. Where is, where is Christ inviting you to reckon with the reality of your human frailty today? And what might he be teaching you or leading you into regarding your new identity in